You are listening to Perplexity. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Perplexity, a mystery podcast. I am your host, Kadra, and this is story two of a three-part miniseries, Do No Harm. Today, we will be talking about Dr. Marcel Pettiot, also known as Dr. Satan. Each of the stories in this miniseries are standalones, but if you do enjoy this episode, I would encourage you to check out story one and story three, which will come out next week. Before we get into today's episode, I do want to shout out Guatemala because I do have some new listeners there. So hello to my listeners in Guatemala, and thank you so much for listening. Major trigger warning for today's episode. Today we'll be discussing some heavy topics, including violence, murder, mental illness, and violence against refugees. Listener discretion is advised, especially for listeners below the age of 13. The sources for today's episode will all be available in the show notes. From an early age, Marcel Pettiot showed very disturbing tendencies. Pettiot was born and raised in France, and in his early childhood, he worried his teachers with his antisocial, violent, and sexually inappropriate tendencies. He was expelled from school several times, one of which was when he got in trouble at school after bringing his father's gun and firing it. Another time, he asked another student to engage in sexual acts with him. He was just 11 years old. It's also alleged that Pettiot enjoyed torturing small animals. He was also prone to convulsions, sleepwalking, and wetting himself. He also started stealing throughout his teenage years, and by the time he was 17, he committed his first robbery. He was arrested for mail theft and robbed a post box, but he ended up being found mentally unfit to stand trial. Basically, after all of this happened, he underwent a lot of psychological evaluations, and it was confirmed that he was suffering from a myriad of illnesses. He had learning disabilities, attention issues, dyslexia, mental illness, what mental illnesses specifically, I'm not sure. But because of all this, any legal charges would be dropped against Marcel Pettiot. So you might be thinking at this point in the story that Marcel Pettiot was your typical insane, deranged serial killer. But what I find the most interesting about Pettiot is how quickly he could turn these behaviors on and off a real-life Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Despite these diagnosed mental illnesses, the French army ended up drafting Pettiot, and he served in World War I. At one point during his time fighting as a soldier, he was injured and gassed, so he had to receive medical treatment. And while he was receiving medical treatment, he went back to committing petty crimes, he started stealing random things 
like army blankets, morphine, and a number of other random items. But he would be found not guilty by reason of insanity. And this time he would be diagnosed with, quote, mental disequilibrium, neurasthenia, mental depression, melancholia, obsessions, and phobias, end quote. Then he would be committed. But just one year later, he got out and was once again drafted for war in 1918. During this time, it's said that Pettyett suffered a mental breakdown, and one source I read said that he shot himself in the foot, and then another source I read said he injured his foot with a grenade. He was given a few weeks leave and then transferred to another regiment. After this transition, Pettyett was evaluated by a psychiatrist, and once again, he was found unfit and that he had this myriad of mental illnesses. Finally, they confirmed he was unfit to be a soldier, and he was discharged on disability, as he should be. But it was also recommended that Pettyett be committed to an asylum, as was the common theme during this time period. But instead, and this is what confuses me, he was admitted to an accelerated education program set up for veterans. This is where Pettyett became Dr. Pettyett. No idea how this happened, but he got his medical degree accelerated in just eight months. And in 1921, he started his lovely practice. He became a full-blown doctor and set up shop in Villeneuve. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, but it is a town in France. Dr. Marcel Pettyet was known, despite his mental disturbances, to be capable of putting on charm. And he was also highly intelligent. He quickly attracted patients and built up a caseload, where he intentionally would over-prescribe addictive substances to his patients. He would also help these patients out by getting them medical assistance from the state, and by helping them out, I mean that he would apply for medical assistance without telling the patients that he did this. And then when they would be approved for assistance, he would just pocket the money. So he was making double the money because these patients would pay him and the state would pay him for these services. In 1926, Marcel Pettiet would meet a woman named Louise Delaveau which was the daughter of one of his patients. And they would later have an affair, but not long after, Louise would mysteriously disappear. One of Dr. Pettyett's neighbors would report that around the time this woman disappeared, this neighbor saw Pettyett struggling with a rather large trunk, trying to stuff it into his car. And this trunk would resemble a trunk that would be found weeks later in a river filled with an unidentified woman's body parts. But the police would log Louise's case as a runaway and that all of the things they found with Dr. Pettyett and the trunk and that what the neighbor reported, that this was all just coincidence. So then Dr. Pettyett decides the same year in 1926 to try his hand at government work. And 
like I said before, he was pretty charming. And he would win the mayorship of Villeneuve-sur-Yon. And then he got married to a woman named Georgette Leblanc in 1927. And again, I apologize if I'm butchering these names. Georgette was only 23 years old and she was the daughter of a wealthy landowner and butcher. And together, Georgette and Pettiot would have a son. But throughout this time as mayor, Pettiot would be accused of fraud, stealing taxpayer dollars, and even stealing cans of oil from the railroad. And eventually, he was taken to court for these crimes. Pettiot was given a fine and sentenced to a few months in prison. But something happened because then there was an appeal and his sentence was overturned, and he was suspended as mayor, but only for four months. He continued his work as mayor after this for several more years, with numerous complaints trailing behind him and troubling reports continuing to pile up until he was finally removed from office in 1931. But just one month later, Pettiot won a seat on the general council as a local councillor for Yon. And at this point, he's only in his early 30s. He was the youngest man to sit in the general council office. And Pettiot, being Pettiot, he continued to live a life of crime. He was charged with theft of electric power from the town, which I don't even know what that would begin to entail. And he was given a fine and lost his seat on the council. But like all con artists do when they get caught, Pettiot just up and moved to another town. So he relocates to Paris in 1933, and he decided it was really time to get serious and hunker down as a doctor. So he sets up this practice in Paris, and he becomes known as this incredible doctor with an untouchable reputation, to the point where rumors when he was prescribing to addicts or performing illegal abortions were quickly swept under the rug. But he also often used fake credentials to attract patients, so there's that. In 1936, he was actually given the authority to write death certificates. He also continued his life of crime. He continued to steal. And at one point, he was arrested for theft and assaulting a police officer. But he was acquitted because of insanity. And this whole time, he has managed to keep his physician's license. I, I don't understand. Like, how are you pleading insanity and being found not guilty and all these people are like, yeah, you're insane. But then you get to keep practicing as a doctor. It makes no sense. And he was committed again for several more months. And all of the doctors at this facility were like, uh, yeah, this guy is insane. He should not be touching patients. He should not be out in the real world at all. He should be here long term. <laughs> but for whatever reason, he was released. And he also committed tons and tons of tax fraud. Basically, any crime you could imagine, 
Pettiet would commit. In 1940, during World War II, Pettiet also wrote false disability statements for French citizens who were drafted for forced labor in Germany. In 1942, he would be charged and convicted for over-prescribing narcotics. Two of the victims, who would have testified against him in this trial, conveniently disappeared. He paid a fine of 2,400 francs. Then he changed his name to Dr. Eugene. I thought this would be Eugene, but apparently it was Eugene. And he set up a false escape network for resistance fighters. And as, as if this story wasn't already crazy and hard to follow, this is when it gets really crazy. So he claimed that he had this network and he called it Fly Talks. And he claimed he was working with authorities in Argentina to make sure Jewish refugees could be safely transported to South America. And these were desperate Jewish refugees that were trying to flee France during its occupation from the Nazis. But what would actually happen was he would prey on these refugees and lie to them. He told them he would help them go to Argentina for solace for the price of 25,000 francs. And he also told them after they paid him that he would help them get vaccines that were required by the Argentinian government. And Pettiet would kindly assist them with this. But these syringes were actually filled with cyanide. So he would inject these desperate Jewish refugees, killing them instantly. And then he would steal their money, their assets, and dispose of their bodies in a myriad of ways. So for a while, he was dumping these bodies in the Cyan River. And then later, he started to destroy the bodies by either submerging them in quicklime or incinerating them in a furnace that he had in the basement of one of his homes. He did this with the help of his wife and three accomplices. The Gestapo, or the secret police of Nazi Germany, eventually got word of this, but to them, from the outside looking in, they thought that Pettiet was actually aiding Jewish people and the resistance. Pettiet would lie and tell authorities that these were the bodies of Nazis and that he was helping the French resistance. The Gestapo also assumed that because this scheme was so elaborate, that Pettiet couldn't just be the one guy involved in this. They thought this was like this big, deep operation. But when they found out it was just the work of Pettiet and a few other people, basically the war was on its last legs and the Gestapo were like, we have bigger fish to fry. And he was released after being in prison for just a couple of months. So Pettiet shockingly changes his name again. This time he is Henry Valery. Henry Valery would join the French forces of the Interior, or the FFI, which were mainly resistance fighters, 
and they were used in the later stages of World War II. Pettiot became a captain in the FFI, and during this time, a newspaper ran a story about Pettiot that accused him of collaboration with German occupiers. He was also soon dubbed Dr. Satan by the French media. So after the liberation of France, it's early March 1944, and all of this comes to a head. People who lived near Marcel Petit's home were beginning to complain to authorities about a horrible smell and this thick, disgusting cloud of smoke bellowing from Petit's chimney. Eventually, in mid-March 1944, Parisian authorities followed up on these complaints. It had also been reported that a parade of callers had been stopping by Dr. Pettiot's home at all hours of the night. They would show up with a horse-drawn cart or trucks, and they would remove dozens and dozens of suitcases from Pettiot's home, while also delivering dozens and dozens of heavy sacks with unknown contents. When the cops came to Pettiot's home, they also noticed a lot of heavy smoke coming from the chimney. The amount of smoke was actually so concerning that they felt the need to contact the fire department. So the firefighters showed up and they entered through a second story window. Firemen searched the upper floors before eventually making their way down to the basement. After they found what they did in the basement, they ran out one of them vomiting, and they told the police chief that they had some work cut out for them. Three officers would then enter the home, and when they made their way to the basement, they would find a coal-fed stove on high heat with a human arm dangling out. Nearby, they found human bones, bone fragments, and what was left of several dismembered bodies. Since Pettiot fled, remember, he's changed his name at this point to Henry Valerie, police would find much more in the home. They found a large heap of quicklime in Pettiot's garage mixed with human remains, including a scalp and a jawbone. There was also a pit dug in Pettiot's stable where they found more quicklime and more corpses in various states of decomposition. Suitcases, clothing, and other various belongings that were believed to be from Pettiot's victims were also found scattered throughout the property. On a staircase leading from the courtyard to the basement, police also found a canvas sack containing a headless corpse nearly completely intact except it was missing a foot and vital organs and obviously the head. A 33-year-old police veteran would take over this case named Commissaire George Victor Massou, and Massou would note that the sinks in this basement were very large, large enough to drain corpses of blood, and that the chamber had wall-mounted shackles, a peephole, and it was completely soundproof. In total, the chief coroner would log 33 pounds of charred bones, 24 pounds of unburned fragments, 11 pounds of human hair, 10 entire human scalps, 
and three garbage cans full of small, unidentifiable fragments. The victims also seemed to range from 25-year-old women up to 50-year-old men. There were also no signs of knife or gunshot wounds, but they had also not been poisoned organically. Chloroform, digitalis, strychnine, and other poisons, along with a very large stock of heroin and morphine, were all found at Pettiot's apartment. It's estimated in total that 30 corpses were discovered in Pettiot's home. Two victims were able to be identified, including Jean-Marc Van Beaver and Marth Kate. Jean-Marc was a Paris resident who had been struggling with a narcotic addiction after getting under the care of Dr. Pettiot. Kate was the mother of one of Dr. Pettiot's other patients, a man named Raymond Baudet, who had become addicted to narcotics as well. Kate disappeared after Pettiot asked her to lie under oath in one of his legal battles involving overprescribing narcotics. Kate had initially agreed to lie under oath, but she had a change of heart after she consulted with her physician. And then she disappeared. During the investigation, police also uncovered Pettiot's diary which included a list of names of 50 to 60 people. And these people were all believed to be victims of Dr. Marcel Pettiot. So police are still searching for Pettiot at this point, and they've notified tons of people, including military officials, to be on the lookout for this guy. So wouldn't you know that Henry Valerie gets notified to be on the lookout? for this fugitive. So Henry Valerie gets this letter and he's like, oh yeah, thanks for that. I'll be sure to be on the lookout for myself. But this manhunt was so large that just one month after this story was run in the press, Pettiot was recognized and arrested in Paris. When he was arrested, he had on him a pistol, 31,700 francs, and 50 sets of identity documents. Six other people were also arrested in connection to Pettiot's crimes, including a barber who referred clients to Pettiot from his shop, and two men named Albert and Simone Newhausen who were held after receiving stolen property, and they confessed to helping remove suitcases from Pettiot's murder home. So the case goes to trial in 1946, and 12 civil lawyers were hired by relatives of Pettiot's victims. His defense, ultimately, was that he was a resistance fighter and his acts were justified. He admitted, though, that he killed what he described as 60 enemies of France that were double agents, Germans, and collaborators. But he claimed he had absolutely no idea how these bodies ended up in his home. He claimed that members of the Fly Talks organization, you know, that made-up resistance organization he created, that these other members must have killed these victims and buried them and just not told them about it. But finally, for once, 
people did not buy Pettiot's bullshit story. The judge and jury did not believe him, and he was charged in May of 1946 with 27 murders and convicted of 26. He was also found guilty of 99 other criminal charges, and he was sentenced to death by guillotine. The last words that he uttered would be on May 25, 1946, which were, quote, Gentlemen, I ask you not to look. This will not be very pretty. And that was the end of that asshole. And that is the horrific story of the real-life Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Dr. Marcel Pettiot, also known as Dr. Satan. I hope you guys enjoyed this story. Like I said, this is story two in a three-part miniseries, Do No Harm. So if you enjoyed this story and you missed last week, be sure to go listen to that. Linda Burfield Hazard, the owner and operator of Starvation Heights, is what story one is all about. Next week, we will get into the final story of this miniseries, story three, all about Dr. Walter Freeman, the father of the lobotomy. I will talk to you guys next week. Bye. Thank you for listening to Perplexity, a mystery podcast hosted, written, and produced by Kadra Brennan. If you enjoyed today's episode, tell the world about it by going to Apple Podcasts or Spotify and leaving a five-star review. It helps the show more than you know. Contact, support, and merch links can be found in the episode description. And if you have a story to share or a topic request, send an email to perplexitymysterypodcast at gmail.com. Kadra would love to read your story on the podcast. Until next week, stay curious.